excited to have uh, a, a really good journalist and a filmmaker here uh, to discuss the uh, latest. It really has been a lot of new developments uh, in the persecution, I'll call it, of Julian Assange uh, that aside from, you know, very short, brief write-ups, uh, has not gotten a lot of attention in the mainstream media. Uh, joining us is Kevin Gottstola. Uh, hope I'm pronouncing it right. I always get it wrong. Uh, with Shadowproof, uh, as well as Gabriel uh, Shipton, uh, a filmmaker who's done a lot of work on Julian Assange. But I wanted to start first with uh, kind of a, to me, very important, dare I say, smoking gun, uh, that kind of the main witness that the United States has been elevating uh, in terms of trying to show a pattern of Julian Assange supposedly hacking government uh, databases. Uh, this witness uh, basically admitted in Iceland that he made the whole thing up, but it's been crickets from the mainstream media and, of course, the Biden administration. Can you give the three-sentence kind of summary of the latest update for folks who haven't been following? Uh, Gabe, did you want to? Yeah, he's a, a key witness in the prosecution's case uh, relating to the conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. Uh, he was... Um, his, uh, his accusations were to bolster the, um, com uh, the conspiracy to commit computer intrusion charge. Um, he was uh, accusing Julian of, um, you know, asking him to hack, basically. Uh, and he's since recanted that and provided chat logs um, that show that, uh, that, that those statements are provably false. Can you kind of walk the audience through, because uh, Kevin, if you don't know, uh, covered uh, the hearing in the United Kingdom for weeks, uh, waking up at 4 a.m. in uh, the U.S., uh, one of the few journalists that was uh, actually allowed uh, to observe it and report on it. Can you kind of describe for the audience what is the significance of this witness who has openly said uh, he did not work with Assange to hack anything? Yeah, so first, uh, I just want to give a lot of credit to Bjartmar Alexanderson. He's the journalist behind this report for Stunden, uh, which uh, was published under the headline uh, that this was a key witness who's basically contradicting key alleg uh, these allegations, these hacking allegations that were brought against Julian Assange that were put into an indictment. And because we don't have solid media coverage of the Assange case. It's probably confusing to people who don't follow it closely, but back in, uh, back on June 24th, 2020, there was another indictment issued. There were no additional charges, but that new indictment contained fresh hacking allegations that blindsided the legal team who were preparing and knew that in a couple months they had to be ready for an extradition trial. But now all of a sudden, uh, how are we supposed to get witnesses? How are we supposed to get people who can contest these claims that are being made about Assange helping hack, helping to hack into um, Icelandic agencies um, or Icelandic banking institutions? And the source for these allegations was someone called Ziggy Thordarsson, who Alexanderson, this journalist, contacted and talked to. And the crazy thing about the story isn't even what we learned from Thordarsson about it's not solely what we learn from Thordarsson about what he has to say about Assange. It's the fact that he's involved in doing con artist schemes against companies in Iceland right now, which Bjartmar Alexanderson contacted him to talk to him about um, because he's basically taking goods and then selling them back to companies. And he's got these like elaborate embezzlement schemes that he's been engaged in while he also has this immunity deal with the FBI that protects him from the FBI passing on incriminating information to Icelandic authorities to come after him. So, um, you know, there's a lot of detail we can get into about Ziggy, but I think what's really important to understand about these allegations from Ziggy is that, uh, you know, he, he's, he contradicted all of his claims about what he, he was sourced to. So the, the indictment, when you read it, it says teenager one. Well, actually, Ziggy's actually close to 30 years old now. So he's not a teenager at all. And 
but when you read through the indictment, you see teenager one, and it refers to a NATO country, and that's Iceland. And it says that uh, Assange was trying to hack into the MPs, uh, hack into MPs to get phone recordings, uh, suggests that he's targeting an Icelandic bank. Uh, what we learn is that everything that Ziggy has to say basically contradicts this because, you know, Assange never asked for these recordings, never asked him to hack into any MPs, electronic devices, um, and that this actual bank that is supposedly was targeted, the file that we're talking about was a whistleblower file that every journalist had, and they were trying to decrypt it because they knew it likely had material related to the Icelandic banking collapse, this, this major event that everyone dug into back in the late 2000s um, that was also part of the global economic crisis that took place uh, then. And, you know, we, we had our own recession as well. So um, I will say that something people should understand uh, before Gabe gets in here, one thing people should really understand is that these allegations aren't actually tied to new charges and there were new, there were no new charges. And actually Ziggy's claims aren't really connected to any specific charge. They were just added to help the prosecutors promote this image of Julian Assange as a hacker and not a journalist to create that false impression that would persuade the judge to authorize the extradition request. And can I just ask you, Gabriel, because unless I read the story wrong in the Icelandic publication, it seemed to me that the FBI also either coerced this witness or helped egg him on uh, to tell this tale. Uh, the FBI flew to Iceland uh, several times. What was the FBI's role, uh, as far as you know, uh, in dealing with this witness and uh, kind of ignoring his criminal record, shall we say? Um, well, I mean, the FBI flew to Iceland. Um, I think there were six agents in Iceland at the time. Uh, back back in um, 2010, when um, WikiLeaks started first releasing, uh, you know, the, all the all the material that um, Julian has been uh, prosecuted for the Chelsea Manning uh, revelations, um, there was an FBI a group of FBI agents there, and the Icelandic Interior Minister got wind of what they were doing. You know, I think he said that they were uh, spinning a web, a, a trap to try and uh, to try and entrap uh, Julian. And the Icelandic interior minister got wind of what the FBI was doing and actually um, ejected them from Iceland. So, you know, um, you know, she found out that they were there and asked them all to leave. So, uh, you know, the FBI is, you know, working, work, was working to, to, entrap, to entrap Julian during this period. I think, you know, what's really clear about this, um, you know, the, this, this really goes to the heart of how weak this computer conspiracy uh, to commit computer intrusion charge is um, that they that the um, DOJ needs to get uh, you know have witnesses uh, with Tortison's record uh, he's obviously compromised um, and but but they've been able to ignore that because this is just a, an example of exactly how weak that charge is is that they need to bolster it with people uh, you know compromised people uh, like Tortison who they have to offer immunity to, um, they have to pay. He was paid $5,000. Um, it, it's just, you know, it just goes to the heart of, of, of how, you know, just the just the weakness of this indictment and, and how it will just now start to unravel. And also, just to point out, in America, I mean, it doesn't always happen, but often years after somebody's been wrongly imprisoned, when it comes out that a witness lied, typically that starts the engines of releasing uh, the uh, prisoner who's been wrongfully convicted. But in this case, you can't even get the mainstream media to report on it, much less any discussion about, hey, maybe we should drop this because this thing has more cracks. And now, obviously, a clear, you know, lying witness attached to it. Prosecutors contended the judge made errors, talking about uh, the original judge that uh, ruled not to extradite Julian Assange. Prosecutors contended the judge made errors of law when determining whether it should be, whether it would be oppressive to approve his extradition. They also insisted the judge should have notified the U.S. government of her, quote, provisional view 
so they could offer her assurances to alleviate her concerns. I don't know, Kevin, I know you're not a lawyer, uh, but I've never, I've never heard of such a thing. So like during a regular murder case, like should a judge, you know, inform the defense or the prosecution of their, of the judge's provisional uh, view? Uh, if it's a one-man grand jury, for example, in the case of Flint, uh, they use the one-man grand jury. Like, is the judge, is it typical for a judge to be alerting the, the prosecutor? Basically a heads up, hey, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm going with this. Here's my preliminary view. So, you know, to give them time to sway me to change my mind. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing, uh, but I haven't heard a lot of things that have been kind of, uh, the law has kind of been mangled from the start in this case. Uh, can you kind of talk about that part where the U.S. is arguing, oh, judge, you should have told us your concerns before you ruled because we would have convinced you not to worry? This may be like how uh, you'll see some prosecutors who will assure judges that they won't pursue the death penalty against uh, a defendant. And like sometimes that can help them in the success of their case, uh, especially if there's questions about how cruel it will be if um, they are convicted and what they'll go through. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is very bizarre. I mean, the whole logic of it being that she uh, has to tell them, I believe that there is corruption within your case. I believe that the prison system is inhumane and, and I'm gonna rule like this. And is there anything you can tell me to make me believe that the US prison system is not cruel and inhumane. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how anybody could see assurances after the fact is anything less than trying to conceal the true reality of the way somebody would be treated if they are extradited to the United States. So it's a fundamental problem right now that the US has to deal with. And it's not just isolated to the Assange case, is that basically you have this district court saying, that someone cannot go to the United States and face trial without being cruelly and inhumanely treated in a US jail and then later on in a prison, especially if they're accused of some kind of national security related crime and uh, you know he's being pursued for national security leaking, that that's going to be something that is so extraordinary that the judge can't trust the United States to take care of that individual and ensure their well-being. So, I mean, it's an issue of the UK and other European countries having procedures in which they have to con consider issues of human rights. And this is not something we find in the US courts, frankly. Um, you don't hear US courts thinking about human rights when they are carrying through cases. Right, and uh, I wanna play uh, Julian's partner, uh, Stella Morris, uh, recently commented on this, and she was explaining, uh, yeah, there's a lot of loopholes in what the U.S. government is arguing. So they could technically say he won't be held in supermax. They could technically say he might be able to serve time in Australia. Uh, let's hear from Stella Morris uh, explaining why uh, the U.S. is not being honest. U.S. has said that they don't intend to put Julian in ADX Florence or put him under a re regime called SAMS. SAMS is the uh, condition where they put you, basically bury you alive, where you cannot speak to your friends or your family, and even your lawyers are gagged from talking about how you are, what your conditions are, or your case, basically, in public. And ADX uh, is just one of many supermax prisons. So when the US says, uh, we're not going to place him in ADX, it, they are not saying that they're not going to, that they will not place him in supermax. There are multiple uh, prisons that they could choose from. Regardless of those points, uh, it's not actually up to the Department of Justice or the Bureau of Prisons about where uh, they're going to place Julian because even in, in their documents to the United Kingdom, they say that this could change once he's in US custody because consul in consultation with the head of the CIA, the CIA may decide that actually he should go to SAMS and he should go to ADX. The CIA is the same agency that is behind uh, its agents plotting to kill Julian in the embassy, kidnapping, uh, kidnap him, uh, targeting his lawyers, 
uh, spying on legal uh, his legal meetings, even targeting our six-month-old ba baby. So does anyone doubt that this agency would not recommend putting Julian in special administrative measures once he's in the United States? Uh, Gabriel, I know uh, you uh, know Stella and uh, wanted to ask you, obviously, she's been suffering along with her children, but uh, what's your response to what she was saying? Because it kind of seems pretty obvious to me whether Julian Assange is in Supermax or not. Uh, they'll find a way to say, you know, he was uh, not on good behavior. He, you know, breathed or looked the wrong way at guards and toss him into, uh, you know, a cell. Yeah, that's why, I mean, these assurances are just, you know, they're sort of laughable in a way because they come with a caveat. And, and you know, in that caveat, uh, the decision can be made by an intelligence officer. You know, they can say, oh, uh, you know, we think that Julian is going to uh, leak a name of, a, of, of a, an informant or an intelligence officer, so therefore we need to put him in SAMS. So it's just, you know, and, and you know, there's no, there's no court proceeding, there's no proof that needs to be, you know, it's not like the lawyers argue over it or anything like that. It's just an administrative thing. So they contact the warden and then Samsi goes. Um, so it's, you know, it's just, it's totally laughable, the, the, the assurances that, that have been given. Um, and this, uh, you know, this, the headline, I think that we're seeing, you know, the New York Times is saying, oh, Julian can serve his sentence in Australia. You know, that was always available under those treaties. You know, it, it's been always available to Julian since, since, you know, forever, it's available to every Australian. Uh, but that only happens after sentencing. So, you know, Julian could, could be extradited to the US. He could spend 10 years fighting up to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, that's 10 years in SAMS or 10 years in solitary confinement. And then finally, after that, he can go and serve his sentence in Australia. It's just, it's, it's just laughable. I mean, you know, the whole, the whole basis of the appeal, um, you know, I'm, you know, the judge didn't accept two, two of the parts. I, 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 I'm, I'm amazed that they accepted the other because, you know, there's a time and a time and again, these assurances have been broken by the US government when in, in these extradition cases. But I mean, you know, and, and Julian's suffering. He's, you know, he's in a maximum security prison this whole time. He won his case. He won his extradition case in January. He's, he was denied bail a few days later. And he's been in this prison, in a maximum security prison, uh, for the last six months. He's an innocent man. He, you know, he's not, he's not been sentenced or, or anything. He's in, he's in this prison with the most violent prisoners in the UK. And, and you know, he's a publisher. And, I mean, this might be a dumb question, Kevin, but I just, I genuinely don't know. I don't really get, I mean, murder is murder, right? If an Australian citizen commits murder in America, you know, you're charged under American law. But it never really made sense to me how they're charging an Australian citizen with violations of U.S. law or, you know, espionage or this and that. But now they're saying... Oh yeah, he could serve time. He could serve, you know, the duration of the time in Australia. It just seems like a very inconsistent thing that an Australian citizen. By the way, what is the Australian government doing about this? Absolutely nothing. Um, an Australian citizen is being charged under the Espionage Act in America, but if he's convicted, then he won't have to be in American uh, prison. Despite what Gabriel just said, which obviously. If he was going to be moved to an Australian prison, it would be not be for a very long time. How, how is you know? Isn't that a basic contradiction? When you look at how the Australian government has so supremely failed Julian Assange in protecting him, it's possible that in these private conversations, one of the things they said is, "We would like our." citizen to come back home and serve any sentence in Australia. And that actually amounts to what they consider to be protecting him and his rights. That, that like, I would believe that the people, uh, uh, the, this public officials and the corruption in Australia is so bad that they actually believe that this amounts to protecting one of their own by saying to the US government, we want Julian Assange to come back to Australia if he is convicted in the US. Uh, which is not protecting your citizen at all, because as you say, how can you be expected to follow this law when you are not a U.S. citizen? 
I mean, let's just go down this very quickly because this is this is important. This is at the core of the case. Julian Assange never signed a non-disclosure agreement at any U.S. government agency. He never signed anything where he agreed to a secrecy oath. He never agreed to follow any secrecy laws in the United States. Now, that's something that Chelsea Manning did. That's something that Edward Snowden did. That's something that other whistleblowers who have been pursued. And we can talk about their cases separately. And I don't, I don't think that it's good for them to be targeted and punished. But they actually signed non-disclosure agreements. Julian Assange never agreed to not release and publish information. And that's because he's a journalist. And journalists don't have to keep information secret. They're allowed under the First Amendment and under our own principles of freedom of the press to publish this information because it is in the public interest. But you also have simultaneously, as they are charging Julian Assange under this U.S. law, even though he is an Australian, you also have them out of the same corners of their mouth suggesting that he doesn't have First Amendment rights. That's what the Trump administration was doing. You had Mike Pompeo as, as, as CIA director and, and people like Jeff Sessions, who was the attorney general, who revived this and investigation and, and put things on a path towards charging Julian Assange. You have people there saying, oh, he's not a journalist. And also he doesn't have First Amendment rights because he's not a U.S. citizen and stuff like that. Well, but you're charging him with a U.S. law. So if you're charged under U.S. laws, then you have the rights that come with those U.S. laws. I was last week among a lot of New York Times folks, and I had the opportunity to ask a New York Times media lawyer <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I had the opportunity to ask a New York Times media lawyer this exact question. Um, what I said was, should journalists in the United States be worried about what is happening to Julian Assange and what may happen to Julian Assange? And I'm sure you guys might be able to guess the answer, which was essentially it's complicated. He said that um, some people look at him as strictly a publisher and other people think that he went too far in assisting Chelsea Manning uh, and that, that he crosses the line away from publisher into kind of assisting. And, and so that therein lies the problem. So um, I, you know, this was not an opportunity where, where I could kind of push back. It wasn't that sort of setting, but I, I just wanted that answer. I wanted to know, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, what does the New York Times think about this? So uh, your response, um, Kevin and Gabriel, to that sort of um, wishy-washy non-answer where basically it, it seems pretty clear they don't, they don't view Julian Assange as a publisher or a journalist. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I mean, you know, that's shocking to me that, that the New York Times don't consider uh, Julian as a journalist. I mean, this, they like they partnered with him to publish all this information and now they're going to hang him out to dry, uh, you know, when when um, when the shit hits the fan, you know, like it's just that's just absolutely shocking. Um, but, you know, Julian, this the, the things that Julian published is, you know, He's broken thousands of stories. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the U.S. has just pulled out of Afghanistan, right? That's 10 years, 10, 10 years since the Afghan war logs were published, you know? So this is the result of Julian's publishing. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, I think the, what the Trump administration was using this case, you know, the New York Times problem that was found under the Obama administration under the Trump administration became the New York Times solution. So they were able to uh, take this case, take Julian's case and weaponize it against, um, against these, uh, you know, the New York Times and, and other, other people who partnered with Julian for publishing. So, uh, you know, I just don't understand that it, this is in these, you know, this is their power, this First Amendment, freedom of the press, this is the power that uh, these institutions have, like the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and I just don't understand why they're willing to give it away. Uh, you know, using the Espionage Act against a publisher is, you know, it's never been done before. And, and it's sort of the gaming of this um, 1917 law to be turned on, on, on somebody who publishes state secrets. Uh, and with Julian's work, 
ever I mean, we I was at the we were at the First Amendment uh, room at the National Press Club last week, where Julian released the collateral murder video, you know, eleven years ago. Um, not one of the people in, in that video who committed war crimes has ever been charged. Not one, you know, in eleven years, and Julian has been pursued, you know, from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, you know, his liberty has been uh, withheld, you know, for the past 11 years. Uh, he's been smeared in every single, you know, outlet, major outlet. Um, you know, he's, he's just been under constant attack. So this idea that, um, you know, he's been abandoned by these people who he partnered with, it just, it's absolutely shocking to me. It's a total insult to the legacy of people like James Goodall, who was the general counsel who represented New York Times when it came to challenging the Nixon administration who were working to prevent the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon papers that were given to them by Daniel Ellsberg. And and he was able to overcome the faction of people who preferred authoritarianism to the First Amendment and got them to see the light, and they were able to win a major victory before the Supreme Court. But I question what the New York Times has become over the last 50 years. We just marked the 50th anniversary of what happened around the Pentagon Papers, including the move by the Nixon administration to impose prior restraint and prevent the publication of those documents. And then we also marked the 50th anniversary of the victory for the First Amendment that happened, where the Supreme Court clearly said that the government can't stop the publication of documents like the Pentagon Papers. And so I would just say this thing of crossing the line that you heard from this media lawyer, that, that, that Julian Assange was doing more than he should have as a journalist to help Chelsea Manning, that is all derived from what he read from prosecutors in an indictment. That is not based on anything um, that is factual, I'm not directing this at you. I'm directing this at the the the, the media lawyer that you're you're referring to. Um, the media lawyer is clearly uninformed about the nature of this case. But not only that, he is also not he or she or they or they're not aware of the fact that this is what journalists do all the time. They are not showing an awareness of the fact that. There are people at the New York Times right now who are soliciting sources to leak to them and provide them information. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we need not look any further than the fact that we had a round of stories over the last month, month and a half that exposed the, the extent to which the Trump administration was subpoenaing and going after reporters at the Washington Post, CNN, and the New York Times for pursuing stories that were part of investigations into the Trump administration and Trump administration officials. It seems pretty obvious to me that the Trump administration was engaged in very political cases where if they saw something in the newspapers they didn't like, they were going around trying to unearth the sources for those stories. Um, these are highly politicized stories. They were intended to advance things like Russiagate. They were intended to show further corruption in the Trump administration. And they knew that if they could stamp out those sources and if they could uh, seize the records of those reporters, they could jeopardize the ability of those news media organizations to do their jobs. And that's exactly what the Justice Department has done to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. They have made it impossible for WikiLeaks to function and they have jailed an editor in chief so that WikiLeaks can no longer be effective as an organization and publish the kinds of stories that they did around the documents from Chelsea Manning that gave them the sort of um, uh, awards and, 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 and led to the fact that people celebrated them as this organization that was covering war and issues of human rights that were of, of, of tremendous consequence. Let's not forget, this isn't just Julian Assange, he's got young children that he hasn't been able to raise. Uh, he's got a partner who is advocating for him. Uh, his family, uh, father, brother, uh, did, recently did a U.S. tour um, where, as far as I could tell, it was mostly independent media speaking with them. I, I don't believe the New York Times gave it the Sunday magazine treatment right. uh, or interviewed them at all. Uh, Gabriel, can you kind of right. talk about just, you know, the human effect this is having on his whole family? Yeah, well, I mean, me and my father, we traveled the U.S., you know, we, we you know, took, um, you know, we basically both 
we're all working on this full time. You know, we've left our jobs and, and um, you know, focused on, on, on this and getting Julian free from prison. So, uh, you know, has that effect. But, you know, just seeing over the years, you know, what Niels Melser calls a, a slow motion murder in front of our eyes, you know, that, you know, seeing Julian over the years, especially since 2017 and, and the effects and the toll uh, this has taken on this man, um, you know, the, I have no doubt that, that the people who are pursuing this want Julian dead uh, and, that, and that's, that would be their ideal outcome. So, um, you know, to see how they're doing this in slow motion, it's just, it's just heartbreaking, um, you know, getting to see him over the years and, and just, you know, what, you know, what, you know, you know watching it before your eyes is, is uh, you know, you get, I do get very emotional, but, and, you know, it's, life goes on and he, the family, you know, the kids, they're beautiful and, and, and they'll just be raised without a father. And so, you know, it does take its toll. Uh, you know, on the family. Um, to even his supporters, he's become this um, like proxy for, for journalism, proxy for freedom. And they also, obviously the media has painted him a certain way. And I guess I think the human element of who he is has probably gotten lost for everybody. Mm -hmm. So can you humanize him for us? What is he like as a person? Yeah, I mean, you know, as an older brother, uh, you know, he's very, you know, very supportive, you know, no matter what was going on. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a publisher or a journalist or I'm a filmmaker and, you know, whatever was going on with me or, you know, he'd be releasing all this stuff and he'd always take the time out to, you know, talk about my problems or, you know, talk about just normal stuff, you, you know, like how his kids are getting spoiled by his grandparents and by their grandparents and, uh, you know, how my dad should slow down, like just, you know, normal family stuff. Uh, you know, he's just a normal, he's a person, he's a human being. He's not this symbol, uh, you know, that, that people make it out to him. He's not a martyr, like he's a, he's a human. Uh, people love him. Uh, he has a family. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's, um, you know, he's very special person to me uh, as well as my brother so uh i've been reporting uh specifically on unionization efforts uh among staten island new york workers um where amazon has been going after them just like they did uh in uh alabama uh but now amazon uh apparently the one of the richest countries on earth, uh, richest countries richest companies on earth can't figure out how to provide central air conditioning or any air conditioning to workers uh, essentially slaving for 12 hours. Uh, so this is the piece uh, we just dropped today. I'll read uh, some of it. Uh, we obtained uh, complaints from workers and a lot of different things. Uh, so I titled it Prime Delivery. Amazon workers, let me put it in the super chat so you can read along here. Amazon uh, Prime Delivery. Amazon workers fainting, carted off on stretchers amid sweltering warehouse heat. Quote, if there's another oppressive heat wave like 90 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside, will the facility be cool enough to work? One Amazon worker uh, at the Staten Island warehouse complained. So as Amazon continues fighting attempts in Staten Island, New York, to form a union, status quo has learned of unbearably hot conditions throughout the warehouse that have resulted in workers fainting and being carted off in stretchers. Quote, from the moment we walk in, we're literally dripping wet Natalie Monarez, a Staten Island Amazon worker who's part of the Amazon Labor Union group trying to form a union, told Status Coup about the extreme heat she and others are struggling through inside the gigantic warehouse that spans 15 football fields. I know you haven't seen it, Jen. This is a humongous warehouse. And just to go on break and, and do things, workers have to walk across 15 football fields, basically and in some cases have to go from one side of the warehouse to the other side for work duties. So they're doing this in extreme heat. Um, quote, well, excuse me, one Amazon worker who requested anonymity for fear of losing their job told status quo they recently witnessed four coworkers carted off on stretchers, ambulances were called due to the extreme heat inside the warehouse. Quote, 
Upstairs on the second and third floor was very hot. Just the heat rising caused a lot of health problems, the worker said. It should have been closed down for the day. The conditions are not fair and we're already working 12 hours a day. It's very similar to a prison facility. And this is one thing I want to uh, get across to the audience. You know, in, in a, for a lot of stories, it's, a lot, it's hard to get people on the record. I've never had more problems getting people on the record than Amazon workers. Not because I don't know what I'm doing. Amazon has instilled the fear of God in these workers. If you even breathe to the media, you're fired. Uh, honestly, the only workers who have gone on the record uh, did so with fairly large outlets uh, and along with going on the record to those outlets also filed complaints with the National Labor Relations Board. So it kind of was too big, pro, you know, big enough profile at that point where Amazon couldn't retaliate because there was media pieces and they had already made complaints to the National Labor Relations Board. But outside of that, I won't get into details because these people have not come forward and they won't speak on the record. I know of at least two even worse stories than this. Uh, and this is pretty bad. People are fainting, being carted off in stretchers. I know of even worse stories of um, terrible things happening to workers, but the workers who the terrible things are happening to, Jen, are basically, ch they're chilled. They, they, they are, it's a chilling effect. They don't want to come forward. These are working class people, in many cases, poor people uh, who don't want to lose their job. And as a result, have to suffer through really inhumane working conditions. Uh, and by the way, it's not just Amazon. We know this happens to other workers in America too. Uh, let's keep going. Derek Palmer, one of the lead organizers with uh, ALU and a fellow Amazon worker, echoed these concerns, telling Status Quo he saw someone faint last month and get rushed to the hospital due to the hot temperatures in the warehouse. In response to the sweltering heat, Amazon has provided fans for workers, many of which don't work. Uh, there's a photo from one workstation that uh, a worker sent to us. Quote, obviously a fan blowing the same hot air back at you doesn't really help. Connor Spence, another ALU member and Amazon employee, told Status Coup. Dana Miller, another ALU member, ALU again is the group trying to organize at this warehouse, told Status Coup she's passed HR officials in their fully air-conditioned offices wearing sweaters and hoodies. So again, these workers are deal only have fans that are blowing hot air. HR, they got wonderful air condition and workers are passing them in hoodies and sweaters. Many workers' faces, quote, look red, Spence said. As the heat wave, heat wave inside the warehouse has continued, Spence and others told Status Quo they've recently seen a rush of ambulances zipping by as they've stood outside the warehouse at the AL ALU union tent. Despite the complaints, HR has rarely responded, Palmer said. Status Quo obtained some of the complaints workers have recently made to HR through the company's digital message board. So here's one image, quote, if there's another oppressive heat wave like 90 or 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside, will the facility be cool enough to work? Uh, Edison, an Amazon employee, wrote to HR. Another worker complained that they're working in 78 to 80 degree temperatures inside the warehouse. Quote, it is still way too hot, even with station fans. How is the system working properly if internal temperatures are 78 to 80 degrees? Please look into this until it's fixed properly and comfortable. Beyond the hot temperatures workers are suffering through, multiple water stations have been running empty, uh, ALU member Monarez complained to HR. While water stations lack water, Amazon has passed out warm water bottles. Quote, we don't know how long they've been sitting or where they've been sitting, Miller told Status Quo. They taste very cloudy. Nobody drinks it because this water tasted horrible. So, Jen, you and I have walked through the streets of Flint and other places during the boiling heat of summer, but we own our own company, so we could find shelter and, and air conditions, uh, you know, if it gets too hot. These workers, and by the way, we have water bottles, uh, often cold water bottles, uh, when we're in the heat. So these workers are work, you know, 78 to 80 degrees in a warehouse, that might not sound like a lot outside. It's a hell of a lot inside when there's not enough air circulation going on and ventilation. So the water stations are out. All they're given is fans. Amazon's net profit last year 
was 84%. Their net profit went up 84%. So don't tell me they can't provide central air conditioning. Don't tell me they can't provide cooler temperatures. This is absolutely absurd, Jen. Yeah, so I have to say, you know, last week I was I was in um, Brooklyn all week, and that's where I was doing the New York Times adversarial reporter training, and it was in a warehouse of sorts. It wasn't exactly a warehouse; it was like a mixture between a sometimes an art studio warehouse. It was a, a space that could be used for multiple things, but the New York Times chose it. The security team chose it because we had to do things like. Um, pretend we were in active war situations and drag mannequins and do little tourniquets and um, do a lot of very physical things and which I could not do all of them. One of the things with my long hauler is that my, my body temperature is very dysregulated so I had to opt out. My point is it didn't have air conditioning and so they had gigantic fans, they had a ton of airflow and even that wasn't enough. And so we had this, um, This it was a, they took, I wanna make very clear, they took exceptional care of us and we're very concerned about our health. We had a ton of water and hydration and those electrolyte tabs, those noon tabs. Um, and they would stop us and say like, even though you guys want to do these things like um, you know, carrying the mannequins to the to the uh, makeshift ambulance and stuff. They would literally say, "No, you can't. It's too hot to do that right now." There was a a great doctor was over from from Israel helping with the training and um, the security team and and some of the guys had been military guys and they were literally like, "No, you cannot do these. We're we're gonna stop. We like tomorrow, meaning that that Wednesday, last Wednesday, we might even go to Midtown to the Times Building instead because it's just too hot." And the reason is what I learned is that heat stroke it does not only sounds scary, but it has a fifty percent uh, mortality rate. So they took this extraordinarily seriously. Now think about these Amazon workers. Here they are in a literal warehouse with these tiny little fans. I assume no great airflow. I assume it's not filled with just tons of open windows and tons of open like garage sized doors. Um, and there, no, there are no there are no there are no windows on several floors. Jeez, and um, and they're they're on their time, so they have to rush to to do their job in in enough time, and so they're rushing around. They're hot, according you know Jordan's reporting shows us that they don't have adequate water, uh, and certainly not cool water, and so I'm thinking of like the care that the New York Times folks took with us compared to the complete lack of care in the same sort of heat. So Brooklyn isn't that far from Staten Island uh, that, you know, Amazon is just, this is horrible, especially now that I know the complete dangers of heat stroke and the potential death that it can cause. Workers who help move products at the outbound shipping dock also voice frustration to HR, quote, how about some fans for the palletized, pallet, pallet tease lanes and eight H-wings on the Alpine outbound ship dock. We sweat too, Richard wrote. Uh, so the outbound ship dock, technically it's actually inside the warehouse, uh, but it's where trucks, there's a little area where trucks come in and workers go in extremely hot trucks uh, to unload or put in products. So it's technically indoors, but um, trucks are brought in to this indoor space and workers have to go in i was told by several sources for 15 20 minutes at a time in an sweltering hot truck so um quote that's where we're getting a lot of the nosebleeds and a lot of the fainting spells from people miller told status quo about workers suffering from the heat in in the outbound section of the warehouse that deals with shipping products outside of the warehouse there workers have to enter extremely hot trucks for 15 to 20 minutes at a time quote I've seen people looking a little sick as they're being and they're being escorted somewhere, Miller said. Making matters worse, pregnant female workers have been suffering through the sweltering conditions, conditions experience severe, experiencing severe nausea throughout the day. Jen, 
I'll let you take that one uh, as I'm not a female, but. Yeah, so when I was pregnant with my first son, I was a teacher, um, a first grade teacher. And so my son was born in August, the school year ends in like mid June. And so I can tell you that in the air conditioned school, on my feet all the time, in the summer, in June, <laughs> it was so, so hard. My feet would swell. I would just, you know, and my son was huge too, but it doesn't, that doesn't matter. Like no matter what, being in the end stages of your pregnancy is just plain miserable, just absolutely miserable. The fact that uh, pregnant women are getting so overheated that they're nauseous is is horrible. That signals that there's something dramatically wrong. I mean, there's one. It's one thing to be nauseous and and throwing up, you know, as part of your pregnancy symptoms, which I've gone through that as well. And it's anyone who's gone through it knows that that's just horrible. Um, but to have to be overheated on top of those symptoms. That's just so extraordinarily dangerous. And then on top of that, you have a baby that's coming. You have this life that you have to provide for very, very soon. So you don't want to give up your job. Um, and you have to be, you know, in an Amazon warehouse shop, you have to be on your feet all the time. These folks are, are in heat all the time. I just can't even imagine. I mean, I would often just just sit down as, as a teacher, which is hard to do when you're teaching six and seven year olds, but you, you got to do what you got to do. Um, but Amazon's not accommodating for any of that. No, I, you know, I, I can't even imagine. And the, the danger to the, the regular worker and by regular, I mean the non-pregnant worker is bad enough. But when you are pregnant on top of that, that is just horrifically dangerous and just really scary, really, really scary. Absolutely. Uh, let me move on. In response to workers' complaints, an Amazon spokesperson told Status Quo the company installed, quote, climate control in our fulfillment centers. And I love how they say fulfillment centers, like this is a fucking, you know, a wonderful place. It's a fucking sweatshop. Uh, climate control in our fulfillment centers, including JFK 8, which is the name of the Staten Island warehouse, many years ago. The spokesperson added that the system provides AC to all areas of the building, quote, constantly measures the temperature and have safety team and the company has safety team members who, quote, monitor temperatures on each floor individually. Amazon also claimed their teams have, quote, easy access to water and can take time off if they choose to, quote, though we're finding that many people prefer to be in our buildings because of the AC, the spokesperson said. Uh, before I get more. I, I just want to point out, I mean, corporations lie. That's not breaking news. Amazon is the worst of the liars. I, I mean, they're e either they only, I mean, in my experience dealing with them, they'll either try to con you into talking off the record so they could just feed you bullshit and hope to God uh, you stop, you know, don't report the information you have, or they want to talk to you on background, which is to again, feed you bullshit so that you will report it. But in in their narrative, I don't know how these people honestly look in the mirror, uh, most of these PR people, because they have to know they're lying. I mean, they have to know, <laughs> you know, it's like if one person doesn't like you, OK, if 50 fucking people are saying the same thing and this is a lot more than 50 people. I mean, Am Amazon's uh, just inhumane work conditions are, has been a story for years. Uh, these people are just consciously you know, just lying with total disregard to the fact that they're all probably, I'm talking about them, all the executives, PR, are probably making stupid money on the backs of these people passing out and being pulled out in stretchers. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Um, quote, absolutely false, false. Uh, Palmer, the Amazon workers, told Status Quo in response to Amazon's claims, quote, how often does the safety team monitor the temperature throughout the day? They don't specify when or how often during the week. Palmer also contested the company's claim that people could take time off if they choose, pointing out that the company doesn't specify how much time workers could take. When Status Quo pushed back on Amazon's claims, basically saying, uh, 
if this is the case, why are these are these workers imagining that they're working in a boiler room? Uh, the spokesperson did not respond. Shocking. In um, in response to workers' complaints, HR has essentially told them it's all in your head. Miller told Status Quo, quote, they say there's nothing wrong with the inside temperature. Everything is fine. We checked the cooling system on top of the roof. The Staten Island warehouse isn't the only Amazon uh, warehouse where employers are laboring through the heat. In Kent, Washington, warehouse temperatures recently neared 90 degrees by the middle of the day, a worker told the Seattle Times, with many workstations not having functioning work, fa work fans. Despite the unbearable heat, some departments in the Washington warehouse were running, quote, power hours that call for workers to increase their speed. Quote, I was sweating immediately, a worker told Seattle Times. I'm really surprised at how ill-prepared they are, given we have known it would be this hot for a little bit now. Ultimately, some employees went home early as a result of the heat, not getting paid uh, for those hours. Uh, the unacceptably hot temperatures in warehouses coast to coast is happening after Amazon's profits soared 84% in 2020. During the same period, workers have been fainting and being taken away on stretchers. Amazon CEO, uh, oh, I forgot to put his name, uh, Jeff Bezos issued a parting words uh, to the company's shareholders as he recently stepped down from his role as CEO. Amazon is, quote, Earth's best employer and Earth's <laughs> safest place to work. Bezos wrote, clearly, the workers essentially melting at their workstations strongly disagree. Um, I mean, what else could you say here? This is <laughs> barbaric. I, I truly don't know how Amazon hasn't been held criminally liable, much less civilly liable for any of these things. Um, this is what OSHA is supposed to exist for. Um, again, uh, you know, part of the problem here is the, you know, to be fair, the New York Times, I think like two weeks ago, did a very, very in-depth investigation blowing up Amazon, but didn't really get much pickup on the cable news outlets. It didn't really get much pickup anywhere. Uh, so, you know, credit to the New York Times for doing it. But it that piece, although it did reveal a lot of things, bent over backwards like most of these plate corporate outlets do to, you know, be fair to Amazon and give their side and try and, you know, uh, he said, she said, and, you know, two sides, the whole thing. When in reality, I mean, you have an overwhelming amount of workers uh, claiming not only, uh, you know, workplace violations, racism on behalf, uh, you know, coming from uh, executives and consultants Amazon has hired in there. Uh, I mean, violation after violation, uh, but it's kind of just normalized basically because the American people care more about getting their fucking, you know, yoga mat in two hours. And it's, you know, we're all guilty of it. Every, you know, every viewer or most viewers, I'm sure, has ordered from Amazon, might still be ordering from Amazon. In a pinch, I've had to order from Amazon, so has Jen. Um, but at a certain point, it's just like a general strike. At a certain point, there needs to be some organizing to put pressure not only on the companies, but other Americans to join us.